Welcome to Altered Potters, where we hang out with fellow artists and talk while getting a little altered. I am one of the hosts, Ryan Myers, a full-time studio artist and instructor. And I'm the other host, Rochelle Miller, a ceramic artist and instructor, and this is Altered Potters. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rochelle Miller, and I'm hanging with Ryan again. Say hi, Ryan. Hi. Okay, <laughs> we have our guest today, Nikki Ross. She's a potter and ceramic studio manager of many different studios. A coordinator. Coordinator around the Madison pottery, area. Pottery coordinator. Pottery coordinator. On the way here, we're trying to figure out if there was a studio that you didn't work at in the area. <laughs> There, surprisingly, there have been, I believe, two. And they <laughs> probably yeah. went out of but business. You're, you're, <laughs> still, you're still young enough that you still have time that you could probably... I'm not closing doors. Yeah. I'm Stay, not closing doors. Just dip, dip your toes in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if people want to find your work, they can go to nstarstudio.com. Correct. Is that correct? And is there any other places that they could go to seek out your work? So I do have an Etsy shop, however, I've taken a break from making with some of the other endeavors that I have done, but there is some past work which is on my website, and then if people want to go and scroll through Etsy, then there's also some additional work that people can see there. Mainly at the moment, it's just kind of in-person, one-off shows at this point. Mm -hmm. I found out that you've worked at places after I left. Yeah. I feel like you were just waiting for me to go. <laughs> was there a problem? Were there was, yeah. Talking? She, they brought her in to do the cleanup. God. You just moved on to other, better, you know, grander endeavors, and I was just there to fill in in, in your footsteps. Oh, please. Hey, now. We jumped way ahead, and we didn't even talk about what we are drinking or what we are oh, drinking out of. Oh, shoot. So let's backtrack. I'm it. drinking out of uh, Stephen Ralph, you know me. He's in the St. Croix area. He's a part of the St. Croix Pottery Tour, and he makes amazing pots. I don't think I can own enough of his cups. I think I own five right now. And you just bought one. I just bought one, too. Yep. yep Nikki yep. doesn't have one, so she's left well, out. Well, she probably needs to get one. I probably mm. do. Now that I have seen it in person, I am I'm definitely smitten. I'm pretty sure he just gas fires everything. It's, it looks like he took some kind of like straw brush to the surface of the clay before he glazed it, maybe through a white slip, mm -hmm. and then stamped it after that. So he did all that work pretty wet. Um, yeah. Stephen Ralph is an amazing person. I've got to hang out with him a handful of times, and his pots are very gentle, just kind of like the potter. And what are you drinking? Drinking whiskey from you, uh, Driftless Glen. Which, where is that? Baraboo? Baraboo. With a nice craft ice cube from Shelly's refrigerator. Yep, and it's a rye whiskey. Yeah, this if they want to sponsor us, we'd love to drink more of their... Pretty sure we're going to bring in a booze. lot of customers. <laughs> um. So I have a Nick DeVries lovely cup here. And this has got a beautiful dark tomoku inside. And it's got a olive slash kind of a, a honey brown and light tan outside almost has a feel of grass or wheat or mm. bamboo mm -hmm. to it there's some long striations from the top down to the bottom with probably a half inch to three quarter inch foot that gives a really nice shadow and a beautiful elevation to it 
There's also a stamp on one side in the middle with his signature three squares, which is going to be either side of the cup. I believe I got this a couple years ago coming out to the Cambridge Pottery Tour when I went to go see Ryan and he was out at Michael Shale's place. Nick had some beautiful work there and I fell in love with it. I am drinking some red wine, which is barely visible with the dark interior of this cup. I don't remember the bottle or the name of it, but it is tasty. Don't you think she should just describe all of her pots that Can we're drinking out of from now on? <laughs> She does a fantastic job. Yeah. Do you want to describe mine? I think this is for you to describe. Oh, I just brought one of Carl <coughs> Borgeson's that I got at the Pottery Tour, also the Pottery Collective this last year. And it's it's got a pretty wide mouth or lip to it. It's a kind of a purplish. I think it's Laura's Lavender. Is that what it is? For a glaze. It's beautiful. It's really pretty. It almost has, there's a lot of variation in it. It almost looks like there's like little crystal bursts of changing out the colors as it goes. So anyway, it's a nice piece. It's got a really nice turquoise on the inside. And I'm drinking some Sauvignon Blanc tonight because it's warm in Wisconsin. And Carl <laughs> was one of your professors. And Carl, yeah, he was one of my instructors years ago. He's another potter that... I own a lot of his work and I can never own enough. They're so sweet. I think yeah. all the, the pieces are I mean, really I own a lot awful. of Nick's stuff, but he just gives it to me. <laughs> I'm kind of tired of it. <laughs> not it, not really. It. Nick will listen to this. <laughs> I like Nick's work. Can't have enough. Nick, you have beautiful work. I'm looking for, for more pieces. So that's uh, that's from Paoli Clay. That it's a, their earthenware. Oh. And I showed Nick that because I was taking it to Cohen 5-6. I'm like, you should check this out. And then he tried it for a few years, and now he's moving on. But It's a beautiful, rich, kind of warm brown clay body. And he electrifies, too. Mm -hmm. So he's getting and that yeah. real depth. It's beautiful. It's got, it's got some speckling to it, but you can barely see it except on the raw foot. But he does a nice job with the compression to still get some beautiful glaze results out of it as mm -hmm. well. And he ramps. Like, he ramps up and slow cools. So that's where his glaze magic comes in. So now we know what people are drinking. Let's talk about you. So again, we were talking about how many potteries you've had your hands in since you've been to Wisconsin. But you haven't, you didn't originally start in Wisconsin. I did not. I am mainly East Coast in my background. Um, there was a brief stint where I lived in England for five years as a, as a young'un, but I went to high school and college out in New Hampshire. That's kind of where I got my, my hands in clay, so to speak, was in college. Unlike Wisconsin, there's not as much early exposure to clay and ceramics out there. And so you may have a random project, you may have you know, a singular experience with clay in high school. A lot of that may even just be versions of Play-Doh and air dried clay and stuff like that, which is all to say it's fantastic and it's great. But I didn't really get to work with clay until I went to college. After college, I spent you know, maybe another eight months or so after I graduated back at home, living with my parents in their basement, as you do. And then I moved out to- Your parents lived in the basement too? <laughs> they did, it was just, we were all like little hobbit people. And I moved out to Wisconsin after that. So I was about 20, 22 at the time. What brought you to Wisconsin? Good question. Was it a boy? No. No. Was it a dog? She no. wanted... Was it an aardvark? No. She was tired of <laughs> local seafood. 
be tired. Just look. We'll see. No, but I do really like seafood, and I was sad to learn that I moved to a beef state, which I don't eat beef, so it's, it's a bit of a bummer. I got to a point when I was in New Hampshire where I needed some change. I wasn't married, and I didn't have kids, and I didn't really have that much that was tying me down, and I had worked for a couple summers uh, when I was in college at a resort in Maine. Uh, it was a fabulous time. It was very much like dirty dancing in so many ways. And I kept in touch with a couple of people and they happened to be from Wisconsin. And so when I got done with college and I didn't have a plan and I was in my parents' basement for eight months as a hobbit, you know, there's gotta be something different. There's gotta be something else. I called up my friends from Wisconsin and they were actually up in Rice Lake, which is about four hours north of Madison. And they were like, yeah, you can come out. And I was like, okay, I'll see you in a couple weeks. I don't think that they were quite prepared for me to like jump ship and necessarily take that offer, but... Did, did they think that you were just going to visit? Yeah. I don't know what they thought. <laughs> she asked, she's like, do you have a basement? <laughs> really good with basements. I moved and it was one of the best things that I've ever done, but I was also very young and very naive. And so I was like hot to trot to go. So I packed up my tiny little car and I had a bunch of clothes and I had a sleeping bag and a coffee machine and a sewing machine and <laughs> some books and that was about it and I moved to Rice Lake for a couple weeks because what I didn't realize were two things one you shouldn't move to a cold state in the winter and two Madison being a university town I didn't realize that a lot of the apartment rentals were going to be on kind of the semester ends so when I looked for places there were a lot that were starting in January so I stayed with my friends for about a month and a half through Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then I found an apartment and I moved here at the beginning of 2003, and I've been here ever since. There's something that's really freeing about that, and I wouldn't have traded it for the world. I'd probably be a little bit more cautious about doing it now, but at the time it was great. There wasn't Google and there wasn't, you know, smartphones, and so I remember looking up potential job interviews via newspapers and going to the library, and I remember being on the Capitol Square, and I was trying to get my bearings for this who knows what job interview and there was a lady who was standing there and she was like hey do you need help because apparently I looked you know out of place and forlorn she gave me not only directions to where I wanted to go but then she also like told me what I would see if I went in the wrong direction long story short I never got the job but I was so impressed with how nice people from Wisconsin were and how genuinely helpful they were that I was like oh my god this is amazing and I called up my mom and I was like you'll never guess what I asked this lady for directions and she didn't tell me to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. What was your first job then? So my first job when I got here was actually working third shift as a baker. In college I had worked at like a small little, because I went to a very small little mountain town college, and I had worked at the local bakery. And so when I got here I was looking for jobs and that was one of the skill sets that I had and so I got this because bakery job. Because making nets to catch seafood wasn't an option. In Madison. I mean, I'm not a Maynard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I ended up doing that for, I want to say, like a year and a half. And I liked the job. The job was great. It was really interesting. I worked with some folks, um, some interesting characters. It was 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. And so it really, uh, it really put me in, in, like, this zombie land where... Mm -hmm without any sort of, you know, connections. I didn't have family, I didn't have friends, I didn't go to school here. And then working third shift, like depending I knew on, no one. And depending on time of year too, it's like I worked, I think it was 12 hour shifts at a factory in between 
college and grad school and it's like I never got to sleep in the dark and it's just like oh it's sun setting sun's up and like a bunch of the people would like go to the bars at like six in the morning after the shift and yeah like, there's no yeah. way I could do that and it's just like god it's a hard schedule yeah. I both woke up in panics in the winter because I thought that I had missed my shift because it was like always dark yeah and I was like is it 10 a.m. is it 10 p.m. like I have no <laughs> idea um, but then on the flip side you know my my interaction after work, after my work hours, was going to Woodman's, which is a grocery store that's open 24 hours, and it was like me and six 75-year-old men just walking the aisles as I'm 22, coming off of a third shift schedule, and it was bizarre. It was weird, but it worked okay. And in that time frame, Mm -hmm. I reached out, and again, I looked in the phone book, because mm-hmm. that's what you do. And I looked for Pottery Studios and I realized that Lakeside Pottery was here in Madison. And so I called him up and I was like, hey, do you need any help? You know, do you need any instructors? And I spoke with Steve Becker, who at the time owned Lakeside Pottery, being the lovely gentleman that he, that he is. He was like, sure, okay. Mm-hmm. So I ended up teaching a class in the evening and then I would go and work my bakery shift. And then I would come back after my bakery shift on certain days and I would clean the studio for trade. <laughs> Since I've known her until now, she's never had less than, what, 72 jobs? Oh my God. A lot. Like, uh, <laughs> at least yeah. three to four. Yeah. Like, it was crazy. Yeah. I feel like most potters are kind of this way. They're oh, like yeah. workhorses and they do what they need to do to like get their biz on. I mean, I'm past that point because now I feel old and tired. But yeah, it's, it's a hustle. I yeah. feel like that's what you you end up doing is you take on what you need to take on. I taught for free for like three years so I could fire in the tiniest electric kiln. And then I got in trouble for firing too often. <laughs> oh, you no. know, like That wasn't lacrosse. So. Yeah. yeah. You're one of the people that I'm always impressed by how much you're always constantly working mm-hmm. and you can still get everything done. And mm-hmm. you're so organized. It's mm-hmm. insane. I appreciate that. Thank you. Those to me seem like they're like hand in hand. Like I don't think that you can do a whole bunch of things effectively without some sense of organization. And that's going to vary from person to person and however you want to go and get your stuff configured. But I do think that most potters like they do have this kind of ramshackle piece meal type of scenario where you are doing a lot of things in various places at various times. And so it's a constant schedule change you know that I have tried really really I shouldn't say that I have tried moderately hard to transfer over to a more online technical type of you know scheduling system and what I have found is that for me I just I just need a, a paper calendar I just need to physically write everything down and while it may not work for everyone for years it is what has helped me stay where I need to be where I need to go and what I need to take care of and why mess with a system that works? Right. I mean, right. it's paper. That's, but that's like... what I do still, and I do that poorly. But <laughs> that's what I use <laughs> more than anything is the paper calendar. So when Steve sold to Scott at Door Potter, you're still working then at that same location, just new owners. Correct. So yeah. So I worked... explain what Door Pottery makes too. Oh sure. So a little bit about the timeline. When I talked to Steve originally, I then worked with him for, I wanna say like about a year and a half. 
you know, again, that was very much like, you know, I would teach a class and I would do some some trade for him. And it was great. It was awesome. Lakeside was such a well-known establishment in Madison for so many years because there were not as many pottery studios as there are now, both on a production level as well as on a community level. Right. Um, I was there for about a year and a half, and then one of the folks that was renting individual space was Scott Draves, and he had his own company, which was Door Pottery. And Steve was kind of at a point where he had run the show for a long time, and he was looking for other things, and so he had mentioned wanting to sell. And Scott was interested, so he ended up buying it, and in the process, he inherited the kind of current lineup of employees, uh, myself being one of them. Michelle, you had already left at that point, but there were some instructors that were there and myself as well as um, Heather Fisher, who is now back in town and throwing pots again, which is fantastic. We kind of dual managed and ran the community side and like the running the kilns, mixing the glazes and some of the production and they had a production potter there as well, Mark Myers. Scott bought the business and in doing so, he kind of took on what was already happening at the studio and that kind of stayed as it was for a while he had his own business and with these additional employees he was able to expand his own business door pottery through that that kind of moved into almost like a new chapter i suppose of like my ceramic timeline and yeah. were you were you making pots at that point or were you more just mm -hmm. kind of the day-to-day's business of running a studio so i was doing more of the day-to-day -day. i was doing more of the running of things and I was making some pots on the side, but I didn't really have like a huge outlet for it. So I wasn't doing shows. I wasn't taking on independent commissions. When I was in college, so we're gonna backtrack a little minute. So. Wayne's World. <laughs> <laughs> While I did ceramics in college, that was my minor. Sorry. I was an English major. Okay. Despite, oh, despite sounding like a other, That's why she's so articulate. That's well, why. But that's the other major you can make a lot of money in besides yeah. art. Yeah, it served me so great. I remember when I told my parents, they were like, what are you going to do in college? And I had a very short time to, to figure this out because I was poor and I had no money. And I was like, okay, I got to get everything done in four years. And so I had a, about a semester to go and figure out like what I was going to go and do so I could get all the classes in. I had wanted to go to art school, but I didn't get it. Primarily because I wanted to do 3D and everybody wanted a 2D portfolio and I can't draw worth a damn. So I ended up going to a liberal arts college and I happened to fall in line with some English professors and they were lovely and they were great and I was like, okay, I gotta pick one or the other so I guess I'm gonna go with this. But I always loved ceramics and I got into it because I was poor. And with all of the other art mediums, you had to pay for the tuition, you had to pay for the supplies, you had to go and pay for all of this extra stuff. And with ceramics, it was like, no, you, you just need the elbow grease. Like you're gonna have your head in a cement mixer, you're gonna go grind shelves, you're gonna go lift heavy things. And it's just the cost of the class and everything else was trade work. Ever since I was like 19, there's just something that's really like true and honest about that. You know, I think you evaluate things differently. I think you give a different worth and value when you know that somebody has put the physical energy into it as opposed to just a price tag. And I really think it helps elevate what the meaning is of what people do. And I've really appreciated that. Anyway, 
Fast forward, I graduate with an English wait, wait. degree. Yeah, So I graduate with an English degree, ceramics minor, which I don't even know if they do minors anymore. I um, think some schools do. UW does not. You know, I made some things here and there, and it wasn't really until later that I started to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And that took a long time, partly because I had a lot of I had a lot of studio stuff that I was doing in terms of making sure that other people were able to, you know, have the glazes that they need and fire the kilns that they needed to. And, you know, that the business for Scott was profitable and running. But in the process of kind of that transition and sale and, you know, trade off, I became an employee of Scott's and that was kind of a pivotal moment because it really gave me an understanding more of the business side of things. Yeah. His business, Door Pottery, is focused on making versions of arts and crafts style pottery. And so it's getting back to the fundamentals of working with handmade shapes, mainly vase components, and really taking the time to look at the interplay of like the arts and crafts and culture. The philosophy of arts and crafts movement was in relation to the industrial revolution. They were trying to get back to nature inspired themes. They were trying to get back into handmade work as opposed to mass produced items. Things were hard at times, but things were also like amazingly awesome at times because we had this company that was making small batch runs of things and we had to look at things from a business side of like, you know, what is the cost and what are the components that we need to address and be mindful of in a profit margin setting, which is a business as opposed to a hobby, as opposed to a love, as opposed to a, this is my heart coming out in clay, Mm -hmm. which is all important. But it looks different. But it, it does, it does look different. And then, you know, there was also this component of collaboration. Right. Because it was a small studio of a few makers. And, and a multiple people working on the same piece. Yeah. I right. Mean. And so we would all kind of work together. We had John Tiller, who was our main production thrower, throwing, decorating, and doing the majority of the glazing. Yeah. Heather Fisher also worked with us for a while. She did some throwing and some glazing, but that was only for a short time. Uh, myself and Richard Retzloff. He did a lot of our press molding as well as a variety of other tasks. Mm-hmm. Whatever he could dance to, he could do, which was amazing. In his weird waiter boots. Yes. He was our happy dancing mascot. Richard, we love you. So my role in that was that because John was so good at throwing and because Scott was so good at glazing, I kind of fell into the designing and the decorating. Right being organized and having to run different schedules and different components of a studio to managing inventory to looking at our customer orders to figuring out what we need to go and have at the ready so that way when John came in for two days we would be able to tell him this is what we need because we need this in two weeks and this is when our show is and this is what we are going to you know have on order. God that's insane like it's just like I don't know I mean John's a machine and you're kind of a machine too in a lot of ways but like to think about making like that I could never. But I also think what you brought is not necessarily how all artists I mean a lot of us are not that's not in our wheelhouse to be able to juggle all those different moving parts so it was really great that you were there at that time I would think to be able to kind of use your 
your skills to keep everything moving. I think everybody brings their own skill set and I think sometimes when you're in varying positions and this can be outside of pottery, this can be, you know, in different facets of everyone's life. I think you at times fill what needs to be filled. Sure. I think I always had a, a natural tendency to want to be organized and it's not like I'm like, you know, I try not to be like pushy with people. Scott may say otherwise, but <laughs> it wasn't until later and it was actually a conversation with Jackie Matelski, funnily enough, and we were talking about things and, and she's like, well, of course that makes sense. She's like, you're just a helper. And I never realized it until then, but I don't think it's really my sense of organization. I think it's that I want to help people. Mm -hmm. And so with John coming in and Scott having his skill set and Richard doing his thing, it's like, how do you help people be better at what they're at? How do you help people do what they love? How do you help people find mm. their joy in ceramics or build their skill set on, on where they're at? Or how do you give them opportunities for them to grow and for them to expand and for them to seek new avenues? And I'm not the best potter on the planet and I've made a lot of mistakes and I've done a shitload of bad things when it comes to glazing and, you know, making things and, you know, experiments and what have you, but I really like helping people. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I think that's kind of where it stems from. And. You know, I think we all worked together really well at Door um, for the most part. I mean, there were trials and errors for sure. You know, we went through the 2008 recession and there were, you know, issues with where's the money coming from and how do you pivot and what do you do and how do you make adjustments on clientele and your price ranges and, you know, how far you're going to travel and what that all means. And you guys were doing shows and stuff too, right? Yeah. So, so it kind of gave you some taste of what yeah, it's like to do this. Going to so. North Carolina, that was a yeah, big show. Yeah, so it was, it was multifaceted. We did a couple of big shows that were geared more towards the arts and crafts market. So while they were not always just pottery related, they were more arts and crafts related. But that was a really good experience to know what a different level of clientele and market held. We made, and I loved working at Door, but we made a ton of vases and like four of them held water. None of them were functional. But that's the way arts and crafts. Yeah. Right. No, it, it's it's tried and true for the realm in which they're in. But at least the ones you made, they weren't radioactive. <laughs> it's true. So. It's true. There were only a couple of lead glazed things but they I, weren't radioactive they were not radioactive and i was not there for the firing i made very sure of that so hopefully i don't have brain damage from that it also gave me that sense of like when people are collectors or people get super into a certain style or they get super into a certain art period or they get super into a range and how to go and furnish their house and yeah that's it like you buy a house and like my wife's all about that it's like i kind of want some period pieces Totally. Yeah. Well, and I also, so two interesting, funny things that happened doing shows for Scott. One, people didn't believe that I helped make it because I was younger. Because the clientele was in their 70s or older. <laughs> true. <laughs> Very true. But also, like, I remember I was doing this show in Milwaukee, and, and I remember there was a guy that came to the booth, and he looked at the stuff, and he commented on how it was like certain original arts and crafts uh, makers and potters, and we chatted for a little bit, and I said, hey, you know, if you're interested, let me know, and I didn't want to be too pushy, and so I let him look, and then as he was leaving, he was like, thanks so much. He's like, but I don't buy from breathers. 
from what? Breather. So Breathers. only dead potters. And I was like, really? Uh, and I was like, what do you like? You're you're not gonna buy from me because I'm standing in front in of you and I'm living. And he was like, well, I don't know what the value is yet. And I why is he was in just our floored. <laughs> why is he in our art fair then? Well, like, so much of our sense. clientele is also very much in tune and versed with the antique evaluation well and that's and so he was like i know what the value of this pot is or this you know pottery and their works and whatever and he was like well this can be very nice yeah i'm not going to go and invest because you're still living that was one thing that it was funny because scott told me a story uh antiques roadshow and one of his pots was on antiques roadshow and they ground off the bottom so they can see door pottery. And Scott's like, I know that's my pot. Oh, man. And contacted the person. And it's like, no, that's not worth what you're saying it's worth. What did like, they, that's, do you know what they... I know what I just said. And that's about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. It was during a wood firing. I so, have no like, doubt, though, because crazy. there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarities. But I also know that, like, people, they, in that collector realm of antiques and whatnot, like, they're looking for their dollar. You know, this is their investment. Um, well, my dad was an antique dealer. And I want to feel like, you know, like, my dad was up and up. But he got ripped off. Mm-hmm. But sometimes he would, like, make things look older than what they were. And it just, it bothered the shit out of me. But... You know, to make the extra buck, and it's like I could see someone doing that, and to uh, you know, adore yeah, pottery yeah. piece. If they took that next step to grind down the yeah. bottom, because totally. all those pieces are ground, because the glaze flows off. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, everything was stilted, and so everything had to get yeah. ground on the bottom. Right, right. I have no doubt that people would go to those lengths. Matt and I were up in Eagle River before kids or anything, and we were at an antique store. We used to frequently check them out, and we found a violin. He pulls me over. He's like, "Look at that! What does that say?" And I was like, "It's a Stradivarius." And we're, in, you know, it's but it was written by like a seven-year-old. <laughs> no. In crayon. No. It was Stradivarius, but I think they also went by Stradivarius. It's only seventy-five dollars, and we didn't have a lot of money at the time. But here we're just like, "Oh my God!" Antique store in Eagle River has a Stradivarius, so we bought it. The whole way back, we talked about how clever we were to like be able to snatch this yeah. violin, and then we paid an appraiser in Milwaukee to sit down with us and tell us about our violin. So in the 50s or so, any maker could use that same label. Oh, whoa. Oh, so the label doesn't mean anything. You've got to look at the quality of the instrument. <laughs> when he's looking at the quality of the instrument, because neither one of us are violin players, he's like, I would appraise this as a $20 yard sale value. Oh, <laughs> oh my <geez>. God. <laughs> oh my God. And so here all the. Score. <laughs> right? And I think he was like $100 to appraise it or $50 to appraise it. Oh, so God. all in, we were out a lot of money, but we had a lot of fun imagining how wealthy we were for a short period of time my dad would be really sad if he knew we had a a piece that he thought was a martin brothers jug yeah ed and laura klein oh yeah 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 yeah. i think they made it like years ago and they didn't sure they didn't put a mark on it no no and i got it and it had a broken handle and whatever and then it fell off the shelf oh and broke and I'm like this can't you know there's no way it can be a Martin Brothers anyway because it I mean it looked like their style it was perfect for their faces but 
it didn't fit. Yeah. And like, it. if I told him right now that I broke it and threw it away, he'd just die inside. <laughs> but, but it was totally, you know, it's like there's, I don't know, like the arts and crafts pots. Like, yeah. my dad collected those for years. And it's like, it's hard to tell. Yeah. It is hard to tell. It's a 4th of July special. <laughs> talking about how your work kind of really gained its voice and you created a, a glaze that worked well for which still had what? like a little bit of the arts and crafts yeah it does a have way. a nod to it you have been With the influenced. madness the gray glaze was it was a hard thing to formulate and i was really excited about it but it was very particular it was very precise Temperamental. It was temperamental. It was a Fickle. little fussy. It really required a lot of precision and care. Based on where I was in, in my maker scenario, I was also pretty honed in to where I was, but I also didn't give myself a lot of leeway and flexibility with those variations because I felt at that point in my time that I should have a certain level of consistency consistency and, and exactness i think for the type of work that you were making you do box yourself somewhat into a corner with right and so with that i made that type of work with the gray matte glaze and the dots and spots on the outside and the the rainbow colored liners and i loved it and it was great and it was mm -hmm. fun and it was amazing and it was a lot of production work and it was a lot of the same stuff but it afforded me the ability to go and put similar things up on the website to apply for shows to not spend a lot of time having to do independent individual shots of things and to streamline that component while still making. So mm -hmm. I could try to increase the revenue, try to increase my studio practice. What's interesting now is that things have slightly turned and shifted where I went from teaching at three studios, having my own studio at a fourth, then moving into the pottery coordinator position at MSCR, and now into my position as studio manager for two studios at Dongju Studio. So then are you working 120 hours a week now? Some weeks it feels like it, but technically no. <laughs> it, has it technically been no. But what's interesting in, in my work is that I went from this like really zoned in, highly precise work mm -hmm. to something that I try to get to be a little bit more fluid little looser part of that is the component where i don't have my own studio i don't have the same control i have to work with some different variables coming into it and you have to adapt and you have to adjust and you have to look at the components that are influencing your work you have to look at your time constraints you have to look at the materials that you're able to source and and to use but one comment that really got me i remember doing a show a woman came up to me and she was a buyer for a wider brand of things. She was like, hey, I really like your stuff. And I think it had to do with the fact that it was colorful and maybe it could play into, you know, different aesthetics and home decor and what have you, because you could have blues and you mm -hmm. could have oranges and mm -hmm. you could have yellows. And what I realized was that outside of the arts and crafts market, there's like another realm of clientele and really kind of like where I hit was going to be the upper end of the indie craft. Mm -hmm. People still wanted handmade. They still wanted one or two makers behind the brand. They didn't want a production company. They wanted to potentially make custom orders, but they didn't want it to be $15 beginner seller pottery. Mm -hmm. But they had a little business knowledge behind them. Mm -hmm. 
so that's kind of where where I hit my clientele in my market and there's wonderful things about that there's limitations on that as well mm-hmm. you know again it's hitting a, a functional craft market where you're never going to get a bunch of money mm-hmm. um, you're going to be kind of capped off but you're also going to get people that really appreciate what you do yeah which is lovely and it's not just a bunch of wholesalers that are asking for 50% off mass production type of scenarios where you just can't outfit that type of number right but I was doing one of these shows and I had a person that was a buyer for another company come up to me and they were looking at my line of work and I had it all displayed out and I had you know mugs and bowls and tumblers and vases and the whole run of the gamut and I had my you know six colors and dots and spots and patterns but there was a consistency to it and I was really proud of that consistency and then they said but clearly there's more people doing this And there's no way that this is handmade. And it just gave me pause and it made me realize that, like, I've become too tight. I've become too too regimented. I've become too too formalized in what I'm doing. That, like, that that repetition, those lace makers, those Mm -hmm. people that have that skill and that, that repetition and that muscle memory you have to do it and expand. Yeah. And I had done it and done it and done it and I hadn't expanded. And so now I love the forms that I make, but I need my surface decoration to be a little bit different and a little bit more loose and have a little bit more illustrative quality. But you should have just said, I don't like your shoes. <laughs> and they would have taken back and be like, what? Why don't you like my shoes? Yeah, you like, just turn the focus in on them. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, what's wrong with you? I mean, it's, it's interesting in the sense that like, you can do as much to get as well versed in your own style, you want but a then it can also be perceived as something that is so far from what you want it to be. Is like I've honed my craft, and instead it feels like it's something that's overly industrialized, yeah. which is yeah. as, as different as I wanted it to be. And that really gave me, you know, some perspective that I was like, okay, like. Clearly, I'm not giving myself enough time for experimentation, for play. For, right. But also, you know. that was one person's <laughs> voice. You can't, I don't know. I yeah, mean, either you say fuck off or you, or you take it to heart. Like, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it hit something where you're like, well, yeah, I want to change and I want to. And it did. You know, one of, one of the things that I did was that I had these really, because of the gray matte glaze, I would compress and smooth the outside of my pots and I would make them like really lovely and smooth because if I had any lumps and bumps and any imperfections the gray matte glaze would go and show that yeah you wouldn't be able to use it and so what I started doing was instead of cleaning the inside of my pots I would leave my throwing rings he would have this really slick outside and then he would have this organic inside Uh and I was like okay maybe that will help and I don't know that, like, most people would put two and two together. But, like, for me, it made me feel better that, like, it showed that tactile quality of the maker, that it showed the rhythm yeah. and, and the sense of who made it. And maybe that came across, maybe it didn't. It made better sense for me. But I have continued to have my throwing rings on the inside, but not on the outside. Yeah. I think that's a good way to have a little nod. Yeah. So now I've kind of moved into working with a similar clay body, similar forms. As you said, Shelly, kind of working with that element of muscle memory and blanks and having Mm -hmm. things at the ready. 
but using those as templates yep. for experimentation, I for ways that you can expand, ways that you can have a different conversation with what you want to go and, and say. And I've liked it, you know, this last batch that I did for Art Fair on the Square, it came out different than what I was expecting. And normally I'd be like heartbroken about it because I should have known and I should have experimented and I should have XYZ could label all of these things different. But I worked with a Laguna B clay body and it's very smooth and it's very clear. It's not quite a porcelain if folks have used that. But it's, it's a lovely background and it gives you a really clear format for what you want to go and put over it. And the clear that I used while I had tested it on other things, it actually has a little bit of a speckle to it. Mm. So it's not terrible, mm -hmm. but it does not, not, show, it want, does not yeah. showcase the clay body that I was using for the purpose of using it. Where as of right now, what I'm doing is I'm throwing the forms, I'm doing a lot of underglaze surface decoration, I'm bisque firing, I'm adding some black underline highlights, and then I'm clear glazing it. And this clear glaze that I used has some specks in it, which is like consistent and lovely, but it just looks like it's part of the clay body. So I either need to reformat what I'm using as a clear, or I need to rethink like what my clay body is, which is like a nice kind of conversation to keep having about like all these consistencies that you have of like, okay, I have the muscle memory and I have the forms and I have the ability and I like what I do. But then you work with like these different materials and based on the pandemic, like there were certain well, underglazes that were not available. Clay likes to punch you in the face. Yeah. It does like yeah. to punch you in the face. While the clay didn't punch me in the face, the glaze kind of punched me in the face. There was also some... It was um, clay's problem. It's not the clay's problem. I really tend not to veer towards that complaint. No, you just blame it on clay. I do. I use Laguna <laughs> B mix too, and sometimes it is the clay's problem. No, come on. What? I'm we sorry. Like Laguna. They're, they're gonna sponsor us. Oh, I'm sorry, Laguna. Um, Laguna, I Laguna, love you. It's great. It's totally clay. not your problem. But sometimes it has bloated in the past. Just saying. I feel kind of bloated right now. <laughs> um, that is a different problem. You know, our friend Square is not an easy fair to get into. Yeah. You know, like having the work to get into that fair. So there's, big a, there's a caveat with that. I am not doing this as an independent maker. I am doing this part, part of, the of the Madison Potter's Guild. Whoa, so you can retract that statement as you want. The original oh. statement is true. You need to be of a certain caliber in order to be accepted into Art for on the Square. And let's do a wrap up. You're making work. To complete, I absolutely fucking love this. Oh, he's drinking more. Yes. Well, oh. so I gotta to, finish to note, the whiskey. To note for all, all listeners, Ryan has now officially dumped the rest of the bottle into the beautiful. I drank a third of a bottle of whiskey. Into the beautiful and Six left, beers. So one of, one of the lovely things that I thought was really endearing about the program when I came in was that Ryan you had really instilled in people this desire to learn more to critique to think about to evaluate where they were and what they were doing trying to make them not make shit <laughs> and that was a beautiful component you know because you're taking people that are going from very beginner classes to maybe intermediate to this independent membership where there's not official <laughs> instruction 
the appreciation that people had for your skill and your background and your ability to help them recognize, realize, really use themselves as an independent pendulum of their own wow. evaluation. Which makes it sound it's big. It's perfect. really good. I mean, it's it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's a beautiful skill to pass on to other people yeah. where they're not always dependent on what other people perceive of them. They're able to take the skills that they have been able to be exposed to mm-hmm. and be able to utilize them in their own work. And that's really what takes somebody from an intermediate level to yeah. an independent level. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a lot of things that are self-guided at that point and you're having to problem solve on your own and you're having to evaluate and that's not to say that you don't have a community and you don't have resources and you don't have people that are willing to go and add their input and to go and answer questions because we all need that and fuck knows even at this point you know i'm i'm still asking questions and i'm still you know not sure of things and i'm still having to go and question and that's good and that's amazing and it's humbling and it's it keeps you growing. It, it keeps you growing. Well, that was it, the main it, but thing. It, but it it's also like, keeps you expanding your, your realm of like, who do I know that can be a good source? Or who do I know that might have an answer? Or who do I know that might go and have a connection? You know, and, and it also helps you keep that community interactive. Mm-hmm. Because well, it's not a singular solo endeavor by any means. Yeah, and you look at other work and you want to improve your own work and you can steal things make a better handle a better handle connection you can Mm -hmm. do these small tiny things and then it was funny because i mean most of the people that were in these programs are older and to make them do that and see and pick up other pots and look at them and whatever it was insanely hard and it took like years and that's where the you know the visiting artist program started there and that was amazing yeah. and that was that was hugely impactful. I've seen the ramifications of being able to have additional resources, additional influences, being at the ready, not where you need to go and take a flight, not where you need to go and drive, not where you need to go and sign up for Insika, not where you need to go and pay for a residency, but like well, yeah. what's relatively local that I can go and gain additional information from other artists and like seeing that program but- that you you started at MSCR and then moving into my now current position at Dong Zhu. Well, you're doing it. You're well, doing I, it I'm, too. I'm trying really Starting, hard yeah. to, to be able to incorporate our local artists. She has visiting artists come every, was it? Well, I'm trying to do it about every quarter. Okay. The idea is is very simple. It's very common to kind of the academia world. And it's also, I think, somewhat nice for these community studios that often have these limited classes of beginner-based opportunities, which is always going to be your basic floodgate into a studio community. Um, endeavor and then where do you go from that how do you engage both the people that have a little bit of experience the people that have a little bit more curiosity but more importantly I see the people in our community and I know how amazing and awesome you all are at sharing your skills at providing instruction about answering questions and giving people knowledge 
how can we give people access to that? Mm-hmm. It's affordable. And I think it is. Like, I don't know that we can afford you, Ryan. But, like, we're getting <laughs> well, there. Well, no, I would go in there. Like, we're getting there. Um, yeah. But, but really, like, they, had, it's, they had me go in. I went and did it. You did go in. And, and, and I feel bad. It was like, for, I like, a like, box of wine, right? That's no, what they did. Like, like, I, I want to I <laughs> be able to, like, you know, give wine. people the, the most <laughs> amount of money that, that we can give as instructors. Well, yeah. Because you're, you're all worth it. You're all worth far more than what you agree to because I feel like the people that share these things, it's so far beyond... It, like, makes me, like, tear up. It's so far beyond, like, what people are worth. No, like, I would... It, it's never, it's never going to equate to, like, I would like go a into, dollar sign. Mm, and, like, it's yeah. really just about people wanting to, like, connect with people and, like, share and expand and answer questions and, like, be all of those beautiful, amazing things that brought us into this world mm-hmm. and, like, brought us into this realm. Of, there are so many fabulous possibilities and there are so many amazing people that are doing this. And, like, how can I learn more? And we've all had that one person that spent those five minutes to give us personal questions answered or yeah. a personal demo or you're like, I can't believe that they're spending this time or I can't believe that I get to go out for a drink with them or I can't imagine like that they are actually talking to me at this point. And what it comes down to is that we're all people that have struggled a lot and we've all made a lot of mistakes and we've all done a lot of shitty things that have turned out poorly and we just don't want people to have to go through all of that. How can we make that better and easier for folks? Those small experiences are huge. They are incredibly huge and they're so impactful in ways that like (laughs) as we move through in like our own capacities and our own careers like I feel like it's very easy to lose sight of that and one thing of managing community studios that has held through across the board it's been beautiful to teach people it's been beautiful to make things it's been beautiful to have my own personal you know glazed failures and high points in sales but really being able to have people have additional gains and resources mm-hmm. well and that's where share, pottery is to though. share that information right? of like hey you know what like i don't know that answer but this person might and like i don't know what that means but this person might and like i don't know that i can go and do that but this person does and like here's this person that solely goes and does this type of firing or they do that type of sculpture or they do this type of of glazing or they do this type potters of share they share and it's amazing and it's beautiful Sometimes and too much. No. I but. mean <laughs> Merkins. Sorry. But like that's on you. <laughs> I'm just saying. But I do think that that is one thing that is uniquely amazing and also valuable in our field. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of other mediums where people are very coveted and they're very they're very singular about their own mm. techniques. Mm-hmm. And most potters are like, hey, you know what? I'm going to show you everything that I possibly know because you'll never be able to do it the same, but I wish you the best of luck. Mm-hmm. And I give you good tidings on however you can go and use that. And that's beautiful to be able to go and share that because we all know that it's hard and it's laborious and it's heavy and it's awkward and a lot of shit doesn't work out and you're gonna start and you're gonna do and you're gonna fail and you're gonna start and you're gonna do and you're gonna get better and you're gonna start and you're gonna do and you're gonna get fail maybe a little bit better and then you're totally gonna fucking fail because you thought and then it's not gonna work and then the failures are good too though and then sometimes you do it like 
for years. Yeah. Same way, and then he failed. Yeah, it's so. true. Or sometimes it's you so do true. it for years, and they change the clay body, and then you have to completely rethink everything. Clay guys? I dig all my own clay, like out of a you creek. You dig it in a yeah. creek around right. back. Yeah. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I once had that experience, though, where I was making a custom set for someone, and it was all based on things that I had made and pictures that I had posted. And then I made this set for this person. It was like, I think, eight bowls and eight mugs. We had a new batch of clay, and so I went and I fired it, and I made them the same, and I glazed them the same, and I fired them the same, and it was in a gas kiln. They all bubbled. And I was like, that's such a bummer. And I was like, maybe it's the glaze. I'm like, that's such a bummer. I mm -hmm. don't really know what to do. And so, like, I made a new batch of glaze and I made another set. And then I glazed them the same with a new batch of glaze. And, and I was like, maybe that was contaminated. Like, that's the most likely cause. So I went through round two. They all turned out and they bubbled. So it's, then you had I, some gassy clay. And so then I had to go back to the original source and we had to go and batch things out. And it turns out that there was more inorganic materials in that particular batch of things. That was really unfortunate because they all turned out to be parts of my cupboard inventory. Mm -hmm. And I had to go make I, that again. <laughs> so in the wood firing that we're unloading tomorrow morning. Yeah. Lovely. Anytime someone's like they order something there's fuck-ups i know there's something that's when there's a up. time constraint too when you're like yeah yeah i can get that done in two weeks yeah. oh man so i made double brutal it is and you know i never really have issues until there's an order and the and then there's issues so no, i'm done like with orders a little. here's what i make you buy what i make when yeah. I have it. That's what a really beautiful point to be at, though. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. And yeah. that's super nice. Okay, what's altering your world right now besides the amount of booze you're drinking? Well, manual labor and what it takes to, like, move a household. Like, I'm building your... Your whole career is manual labor. That's yeah, but this true. is, like, more... Ma like, yesterday I fired a wood kiln and then I split enough wood to fire another wood kiln and then today i built retaining walls and then tomorrow i'm gonna finish that so that's all training your world is is realizing that you've got yeah, a, shit a lot ton of things of are heavy to do that you have to carry things are heavy <laughs> and then i have to build the studio ryan what's altering your world nothing <laughs> good <laughs> Hey, Nikki, what's altering your world? So right now I'm really excited about being able to put out this new batch of work um, at Art Fair on the Square, which is going to be uh, next weekend. So at the time of this recording, wow, this is going fast. to be July 9th and 10th in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm excited to get feedback and responses on it. It's a little different than what I anticipated or expected. It's given me a... A deadline. Well, yes. it's, it's given me a deadline for sure. But it's also, it's made me really appreciate making again because it's been a very long time in some of my different uh, professional jumps I have not been personally making as much it's been a good grounding experience it's been a really good lovely experimental process in that sense 
Otherwise, for the rest of the summer, I'm really excited to go out to Colorado and spend some time with my husband's family. But yeah, I'm looking forward to getting outside. I'm looking forward to having some outdoor adventures. And then later on in the summer, we're going to be going back to the Boundary Waters. And this will be our third year in a row. And last year, our trip was cut short because the bear ate our food. So... Oh, I'm really looking forward to being able to enjoy the rest of our canoe trip if we're able to go and didn't keep the they, bears away. Didn't they, though, close it last year because of the water being a so low, too? A week after we got out. Yeah. So we were there, and water there was a bunch bears? of bear activity. Water bears. Oh. There was a bunch of bear activity, and then a week, about a week or so <laughs> after we got out, um, they ended up closing down the, the boundary waters, and the nature of the place is that they don't have cell service, and they don't have right. uh, the nature or, or motorized nature? boats in a lot of areas, and so... They had to like send people out, like rangers, like out in canoes to like tell people, like, you gotta come back, like, you're not allowed to be out here. Okay, what's altering my world? And I'll just make a quick comment Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. And women losing rights. Yes. And if I think very much about it, I get so depressed and so sad. So I'm trying to figure out ways that I can get involved either financially or donating time to do what we can to reverse this new path we're going down because it's it's Fucked terrifying up. yeah so that's it but it's such a bummer <laughs> there's yeah. no one there it is i mean shelly bring the podcast down our state of affairs is it's an absolute fucking bummer and there's many repercussions of this and one particular decision and it's on some it's it's the supreme court not only re- took away a right that women have had but they also are limiting what the epa can do and you're talking about nature and i mean it's it's the whole thing is a very scary time and i think we're better than this get involved get active and be powerful and on that note thanks for joining us thanks Thanks so much for having me it's been a blast to go and chat with you both and thanks so much for not only having me here but also being such important individuals in our community and such influential members of our clay endeavor i don't think normally the guest thanks us so much do they we're pretty important (laughs) you are pretty important you guys are amazing sorry i got bombed (laughs) too much labor during the day yeah Uh, it's great Thanks again.